The subject of the talk tonight is Transcendent Dependent Origination. <laughs> and uh, having said that, I have to say that's the hardest thing about the talk. It's all easy from here on. But first I just wanted to check in with you all as this is the last night of the retreat. Does it feel a little bit different than the first night of the retreat? gone through some change in these seven days. You feeling happy? You feeling ready to go home? A little mixed, huh? A little mixed. In the talk tonight, what I want to talk about is the uh, development and the role of happiness and joy in the practice. One of the Buddha's most famous teachings is called Dependent Origination, and in it he traces the arising of suffering based on ignorance, through a chain of 12 links. Uh, the, the heart has the arising of craving and clinging as the main causative factors in suffering. And it shows the way to freedom by the undoing of those 12 links, beginning with the undoing of ignorance, leading to the undoing of suffering. This is another chain, also in 12 links, but where he describes the journey to liberation in positive terms. And I find this a really inspiring way to look at the practice because it puts it all in terms that I personally find really uplifting. This is the uh, sequence that I'd like to go into this evening with you. It's based on a discourse that appears in the Samyutta Nikaya called the Upanisa Sutta. And it's sometimes called the radiant wheel because of the uplift of it. And it's sometimes called the wheel of awakening. But the commentaries call it transcendent because it's the journey that transcends suffering, that overcomes suffering. So I can't resist slipping in uh, a riddle at this point. Um, And that is, the riddle is, uh, why did the yogi refuse Novocaine? Nobody knows? because they wanted to transcend dental medication. Okay, it's bad, it's bad. That's the low point of the talk. No more like that. So this chain begins actually where the other one left off. The other one traced the journey from ignorance to suffering. This one starts at suffering and traces the journey to liberation. I'll just mention the 12 links first and then go through and talk about them in some more detail. It said that suffering leads to faith and faith leads to joy, which leads to rapture, tranquility, happiness, concentration, knowing and seeing things as they are, disenchantment, dispassion, liberation, and knowledge of the extinction of the taints. This is a sequence that I'd like to go into this evening. So the first uh, two links, it said that suffering is the cause for the arising of faith. This is kind of a surprise when you stop to think about it. Because we can look out in the world and there's a lot of suffering going on. And there's not a lot of liberation going on. 
So somewhere this chain isn't getting completed in normal life. And generally, in fact, what suffering does is it conditions deeper ignorance. The suffering usually causes us to respond with more craving, with more greed and aversion, and that thickens the sense of self, which really prevents us from seeing the way things really are. The Buddha said that suffering has one of two outcomes. It results either in bewilderment, or you could say confusion, or in search. Either in bewilderment or in search. So here, if suffering is going to lead to faith, something is running counter to the tendencies of samsara, of the pain of cyclic existence that governs most of the world. And it's said in this tradition that there are two conditions for suffering to turn into faith. One is there has to be an awareness that we're suffering so that we're no longer in denial about that basic fact. And the second is that we hear true teachings. We hear teachings that truly have the power to liberate that suffering. And I think when I look back into my own life and the way I came into practice, I can really relate to this teaching that suffering is the cause for the arising of faith. Because at a certain point in my life, I went through a a very unhappy period and I was strongly motivated to find an answer to it. I was strongly motivated to, to that search. And so in a way, the suffering kind of becomes like the sand, the friction in the oyster that by rubbing over and over and over again creates the pearl. This is one of the ways that suffering can work in a spiritual life. We really become open to looking at things in a new way when we're suffering, in a way that if we're just gliding along in a complacent way, we're not. This really came home to me a few years ago. A friend and I got an invitation from the juvenile hall in San Mateo in the Bay Area to teach meditation to a group of young people who were in juvenile hall. And so we accepted it. And we went into the maximum security wing of uh, the building. For those of you who don't know this feature of the, uh, quote, justice system, unquote, um, juvenile hall is where young people are kept who are below the age of 18 who have been arrested for some crime but before they're put on trial. So in the maximum security wing, there were these 15, 16, 17-year-old guys who had been arrested for things like murder, attempted murder, armed robbery, assault, pretty serious things. And they hadn't yet um, appeared before a judge and gone to trial. So here they were, locked in their cells for most of the hours of the day, probably 18 hours a day, some common time out in the common room. And you can imagine the, the fear and insecurity they would have about their life. They wouldn't know if in the next few months when they went to trial they would put, be put away in jail for years and maybe the most, the majority of the rest of their lives. Being 16, 17 years old, they didn't have any tools to cope with this situation of, of fear and insecurity. And then in the, in the common room where they'd hang out during the day, they were with other people who had had a fairly tough upbringing and um, it was kind of a violent atmosphere. It's kind of an angry atmosphere. It wasn't a great deal of loving kindness, that's for sure. And then they go back from that and they get locked up in their, in their cells. So they're just basically bouncing off the walls 
with all the emotions and um, uncertainty and insecurity that are, that are bouncing around inside them. So we came into this setting to, to share some of the tools of meditation, and we had no idea if it would be relevant or not. We didn't know anybody who had tried it before, and we didn't know this kind of experience from the inside. So, you know, it was the most, probably the most nervous I've ever been teaching. I had no idea if this was going to connect or not, and I felt like a fool a number of times, but that was okay. So we thought, well, we better not call it meditation, and we especially better not call it Buddhism, because, I mean, that's for wusses, you know. (laughs) These guys aren't going to turn out for that kind of class. So we, we build it as uh, mind power. And uh, they, they, they could kind of dig that. Come and get some training in mind power. So we started teaching them the, basically the same kinds of techniques that um, we've been teaching this week, which is starting with the breath, opening to body sensations. And then this is where it got interesting. And this is where we actually ended up spending most of our time teaching them how to deal with their fear and anger. And we gave the same instructions that we've given here to go ahead and just feel it in the body. Don't try to do anything with it. Don't try to make it go away. But just let yourself experience it. See, it's just another emotion. You can be with it. It'll come and then it will go. And these guys turned out, some of them, some of them turned out to be some of the most motivated meditators that I've seen because they really needed a way to deal with what was going on in them. And nobody had given them any clues, any tools of how to work with it. So from that situation, they really took, some of them, really took these tools to heart and would work on them diligently in all the hours that they were lying on their bunk bed in their cells. And they'd come back the next week and talk about it. Some of them really got into it. I remember one guy um, talked about using it to help him get to sleep. And I said, okay, I want you to investigate and tell me, do you fall asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath? <laughs> he came back the next week, and I asked him, which did you fall asleep? And I said, I haven't found it yet, but I'm going to keep looking. <laughs> so that was really beautiful to see that um, when we are in difficulty, we're really able to kind of dig deeply inside ourselves and find a kind of strength that we didn't know that we had. And one of the things that's great in the interviews is that we hear this from you every day. You know, you'll come in and say something like, I was able to actually be still and have acceptance with a strong pain in my body. I was able to watch an emotion come and not feel so glued to it, to observe its coming and going. So sometimes when we're pressed, we find something new or something new comes through us from the element of suffering, from the friction of it. And it's actually why we don't um, hesitate to put you into a fairly rigorous schedule in being here. I know for those of you who haven't done a retreat before, sitting still for 45 minutes, you know, hour after hour during the day is a lot. And then just walking in between but the, the difficulty that that brings up actually becomes um, the sand in the oyster that creates the pearl of wisdom. Sometimes we get brought to an extremity in practice, an extremity of suffering, and something really new breaks through. And I just want to tell one story 
um, from the life of Ajahn Chah about this. Ajahn Chah was one of the great masters of Thailand of the last 50 years. He died about 10 years ago. He was Jack Cornfield's first teacher. And when he was a young monk, he was, he was progressing in his meditation, but he felt that he needed to really face the things he was afraid of. One aspect of Thai culture is that there's quite a lot of fear of ghosts. So when someone has recently died, there's a little nervousness about being too close to the body because it's believed that the spirit is still wandering around for a while and the spirits can be quite mischievous, if not outright malicious. So there's an an anxiety, there's a general fear in the culture about that. And Ajahn Chah said he had that too. So he thought he should face it. So he decided to go and do a meditation by a charnel ground. And in the the Thai villages at that time, most people were cremated, as they still are in Thailand, and there was a particular ground near the village where they burned the bodies. So he knew that there was going to be a burning on this particular day, and he decided to go at dusk and to sit all night, all through the night, next to the funeral pyre. So he got there about dusk, and the body that day that had um, been burned was a small child. And the, um, the fire was dying down at that point in time, and he took his seat near the funeral pyre, and he said as he sat, he started to get afraid. He thought, well, this is what I came from. I'm not going to run away now. So he just kept sitting. And the fear was, the fear was strong for him. But his determination was also strong, and so he just sat through the night, and he made it. No, no real problem. He came to the morning, and he said, time for my alms round. He collected his food, took some rest during the day, and he thought, well, that wasn't so bad. I think I'll do it again tonight. And so he went to the charnel ground again that evening, but, but on this day, an adult uh, man had been cremated. And that's a little scarier because the spirit is thought to be a little stronger. So he took his seat. The pyre was still burning. And uh, the body hadn't been completely consumed at that point. So he took his seat with his back to the fire. It was dusk, getting dark. And as he sat and began his meditation, he could hear the flames licking and the sizzling of the body as it was still burning behind him. And he said, then the fear really started to come. It was dark. And he knew that the body was was very freshly burned. He said as he sat there, he started to, to get very afraid, more afraid than the night before. But he was determined. He just sat. As he was sitting with his eyes closed, from the direction of the pyre, he started to hear footsteps crinkling on the leaves one after another, moving in his direction. Hadn't heard anybody approach, just heard these footsteps. So he resolved he was not going to open his eyes. The footsteps came closer and closer, and they started to walk around him. And they walked around and stopped right in front of him. And he said at that point, the fear was just rising all the time, every moment, just getting bigger and bigger. And when they stopped in front of him, he said the fear filled his whole body. It was just like somebody had poured a pitcher of water into a vessel, and the fear was filling every corner of his body. He'd never been so afraid in his life. 
And he sat there just scared out of his mind. He said, I didn't even have the wits to meditate anymore. I couldn't think. I couldn't think what to do in meditation. All I could do was remain sitting there and be full of this intense fear. And finally, the idea came into his mind, what's the worst thing that could happen? And he thought, the worst thing that could happen is I could die right here tonight. And he thought, well, I have to die someday. I might as well die meditating. It's a better way to go than almost anything else. If I have to die, I have to die. And in that moment of sort of accepting the worst that could happen, he said all this intense fear energy that was filling his body just in one second turned into bliss. His body was just full of this strong, blissful energy. And he said at that point, it just filled him up and he sat through the night with no problem at all. Just in one moment, that changed. And then his body felt light. It's obviously still energized. And, he's, and at that point, the footsteps just walked away. And he never did open his eyes. He never did find out what they were from. But he sat through the night. And he said later, looking back on that point in his practice, that he really felt he had turned a major corner in his practice because he had faced his strongest fear and it had transformed for him. He said he was never really bothered by fear again after that. So sometimes even the things that sound like the worst experience we could have in practice turn out to be the moments of greatest understanding and in a way greatest freedom. And so we shouldn't necessarily hold ourselves back from going up against something that is very scary or very difficult to feel. But often a strength comes through that we didn't know we had. And it's that kind of understanding, that kind of insight that leads to the second link, which is faith. The Pali term is sadha. The etymology of the term is to place one's heart upon. So faith in Buddhism is not about subscribing to a series of beliefs. You know, I believe X, Y, and Z, therefore I have a faith. But faith is really a heartfelt quality. Uh, a synonym for it is trust. Another synonym is confidence. So it's really looking inside your own heart and seeing what do you trust in in life? What can you place your heart upon that you feel can support you, can help you? Traditionally in Buddhism, it's said that um, uh, one, is, is, uh, one feels this faith toward the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. But I think rather than accepting some rote, it's really more important to feel the growth of trust in yourself, the kind of trust that lets you open in a moment of full awareness and presence without holding anything back. So we resonate with the teachings to the extent that we think, yeah, that... That sounds so. We hear the teachings and we think that sounds true. Once we put the teachings into practice, we carry that out and we see that they work. We see that they have the potential of freeing us from some of our suffering. On that experience, faith is built. So faith really grows from experience 
from taking the teachings, applying them, and testing them. And then we start to have a faith that we can walk the path. We can do this ourselves. That this is not just about the Buddha. This is not just about other people. This is really about us, that we have the potential to walk the path that frees us from suffering. So we make an effort, and you all have made a lot of effort over this week. It's been beautiful to, to see. And in that effort, even though there's a lot of difficulty, we come to discover that there's really, along this path of awakening, there's really a lot of joy, too. And this is the third link, the link of joy or gladness. And it's really, really helpful, as Christina was pointing to in a talk the other night, to to recognize these moments of joy and to cultivate this as part of your path and part of your life. You know, we hear a lot in the Dharma about dukkha, 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 about the suffering side of life. And sometimes we don't talk as much about the joyful side. One of the things I like about this particular discourse is that it really shows how central joy and happiness are in the path. It's integral. It's necessary. And it can be developed. Basically, we develop it like we develop mindfulness, which is we tune in to it when it's there. We appreciate it when it's there. We really let ourselves feel the joy that comes. And when we turn the mind in this way, it helps support us. It makes us, uh, it brings about a cheerfulness because we keep inclining the mind to that beautiful quality, that beautiful possibility. The Buddha said that a practitioner is not overwhelmed by suffering and does not overwhelm himself with suffering. I don't know if you ever felt at times that you were overwhelming yourself with suffering, but it's not a recommended part of the procedure. <laughs> so we tune into joy where we, where we can, where we find it. And on retreat, we notice that it's in the simple pleasures. You know, waking up and having a warm shower, coming into the lunchroom and finding a beautiful meal before us. The simple pleasure of when you're tired, just being able to rest your body uh, for sleep at night and going to bed. All these simple pleasures that we can tune into every day. And some of these simple pleasures, because we're, we get so sensitive on retreat, they become really heightened. I mean, there have been times in the early days on retreat, what we had for tea was a cup of herbal tea, about five peanuts, they were rationed, and a piece of fruit. But I have to say that, uh, that you know, an orange and a cup of herbal tea tasted much better than many expensive restaurant meals I've had. It was like gourmet dining. Just that piece of fruit and the tea at times. And the Buddha mentioned something like this too. He said... Robes, alms food, and a small hut will seem rich and luxurious to one who has renounced. Because the senses become so alive. In a situation like this, there's also the joy of nature. And we can open to that almost any time in a setting like this. Seeing the sun for the first time in about three days has a lot of joy. And it reminds me of one of the periods when I was practicing in Thailand. I'd recently been ordained as a monk. And I first went up to practice in a really small monastery in the north of Thailand, outside of Chiang Mai. It's about 40 miles outside of Chiang Mai. 
And this monastery was like a little gem. It was tucked down at the bottom of a deep canyon. And there was a river that ran through the middle of it. It was the only place I saw in Thailand where the facilities for men and women were uh, very equal. Because the nuns' kutis, or huts, were on one side of the creek. And the, the monks' huts were on the other side. And both had good, good facilities. But the Thais are so hospitable that as a foreigner, they gave me the best hut in the whole monastery. Really kind to foreigners. And it was the hut that was furthest up the canyon. And from my hut, I couldn't see any of the other huts. So it was very um, private, very secluded, and really ideal for meditation. So the beauty of it was that we were down at the base of this uh, steep canyon with the walls rising on both sides. and The sun would come over fairly early in the day, but it would set fairly early also. And the river was running beside. It was um, always flowing with water, running right beside my stream. So I could sit outside by the river. I could sit inside and be away from the mosquitoes. It was really a beautiful setting. But at the same time, it was a difficult time in my practice. I just recently ordained. I was kind of getting used to being a monk, being a new monk. I was there for three months, and the teacher there didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak any Thai. So not only was there no evening Dharma talk, there were no interviews for three months. You know, my contact with the teacher would basically be he would bring visitors up so they would watch the foreign monk meditate. <laughs> and... Um, they, they'd look in through my screen, screen windows, and fortunately I would always be meditating. And um, I could hear the Ajahn saying, oh, D, D, which means good, good. You know, he's, he's doing it. And, um, and then, then they'd walk off and I wouldn't see him again for another week or so. So this was challenging. This was challenging for me. It required a lot of self-reliance. And I went through periods of being lonely. And, you know, I had a lot of bodily pain at that time in my practice. It was kind of a difficult period. I felt quite, quite isolated. There really wasn't another Western person around to talk to or go over my practice or anything. So it wasn't an easy time. But also I look back on it with a lot of fondness because I really felt that I was sustained by the beauty of the nature there that there was such a supportive setting in the river and the rocks and the beauty of the canyon um, that really kept me going. And one of the things I remember is that I had a a big mango tree right outside my kuti. I'd have to walk underneath it every morning to go for breakfast and come back underneath it after breakfast, and it was mango season. So all the ripe mangoes were falling on the ground and plopping open, and that smell was so rich walking by there. Unfortunately, as a monk, you can't pick up even fallen fruit. You can only take food that's offered to you from the hands of someone else. So all I could do really was smell the mango. (laughs) But it was a delicious kind of frustration. So So opening to the beauty of nature that's around us is a great support. There's a great joy in retreat in the kind of peace and stillness and concentration that we can touch through our practice. Somebody said in an interview the other day, I don't think my mind has ever been this quiet before in my life. And that was, that's certainly been true for me. 
And, and when I think back about it, that it's so delicious to have the mind be quiet, to touch that stillness, that I think in a lot of ways that's what kept me coming back on meditation retreats. I thought, boy, if it can get this still, you know, how much stiller can it get? What else is possible within that silence? And it does, it continues to deepen and the insights continue to flower from that stillness. There's also a real joy in being with the truth. Even when the truth is difficult, as it often is in retreat practice, in meditation practice, one of our uh, colleagues, Ruth Dennison, a very venerated teacher, had a nice way of putting it. She said, um, you know, darling, she's German by birth, you know, darling, self-knowledge is never good news. (laughs) It's really true. Self-knowledge is not usually good news. And so even the insights we have are sometimes hard to accept, kind of hard to take. You know, we see these deeply conditioned patterns of um, inadequacy or fear of loneliness or desire for approval that may have driven our lives in a lot of ways. And it's a little difficult to take in. But there's also, I think if you look, you'll see that there is a real delight in seeing those things. Because in seeing them, we know there's a possibility of being released from them. There's the possibility of finding freedom from them and then opening up to a whole different way of living, even in those difficult insights. Joy is really intrinsic to the nature of things, I think, intrinsic to our own life, as Christina mentioned, and intrinsic in existence itself. And you can kind of feel this in nature, just opening up to the lushness of uh, this midsummer kind of growth in Massachusetts, the, the play of the sunlight on the leaves in the late afternoon. You can feel the delight in, in all of that. Hinduism has this um, expression that they use to refer to the nature of reality. And the expression is Sat Chit Ananda. And it, it means being, consciousness, bliss. I say these are the three aspects of, of reality. Being, consciousness, bliss. And you can tune into this anytime that you want to open your eyes to it. I often use the play of light to tune into that. The radiance of life outside or the reflections of light inside. It kind of reminds me of the sparkle of that bliss in existence. And when the mind gets relaxed and you can start to tune into this, the amount of joy in a moment can be huge, really huge. This is from Thomas Merton. There is in all things an inexhaustible sweetness and purity, a silence that is a fountain of action and of joy. It rises up in wordless gentleness and flows out to me from the unseen roots of all created being. Really, it's always there. This quality of joy then intensifies into the next link in the chain, which is called rapture. The Pali for this is PT. The understanding of rapture, I think, is that it's the intensification of joy as we bring it into our meditation subject. So we take that gladness and the delight that we feel perhaps externally 
and we find a way to activate it or transfer it into the domain of meditation. So there's a kind of, rapture is really about an interest in delight in what we're experiencing. And in this way, I think a good synonym for it is rapt attention. So subjects like the breath at times become really fascinating and delightful. The level of detail that we start to find in taking a step in the walking meditation becomes a real uh, subject of interest and joy for us. Another good synonym for this kind of rapture is joyful interest. When you find that your mind is delighted in the process of being with your experience, being closely with it, experiencing it intimately. The quality of rapture is um, highly thought of in the teachings. It's one of the jhanic factors associated with strong concentration. It's also one of the seven factors of enlightenment. This particular quality is a factor of mind, but it's often accompanied by a lot of uh, bodily energy. So it's said that rapture has physical manifestations like uh, goosebumps, jolts of energy, uh, uplifting energy, where the body starts to feel very light. And it said the intensification of this can lead to levitation. So beware. <laughs> you might find yourself bouncing around the room. So we often first notice this quality in a heightened sense of physical energy. The physical energy can come up really strongly in rapture and actually be quite turbulent. It seems like we might be going backwards in the meditation, but when the factor of rapture in the mind is there, it's not the case. It's a new uh, deepening process. But this rapture, because it has at times a turbulent quality, um, can be softened, can be mellowed, and that's done through the next step in uh, the chain, which is tranquility. So as the rapture intensifies in the mind, the mind's delight tends to start calming down the bodily energy. So the uh, experience of tranquility comes in, you could also call it relaxation or ease or serenity, and that starts to bring a calmness also uh, in the body. And what this allows us to do is to really settle into the moment in an easy way, in a calm and relaxed way. That then leads to the next factor on the path, which is uh, often translated as happiness. The Pali word for this is sukha. I like this Pali word sukha because it sounds like the same root as uh, sugar. You know, in French, uh, sugar is sucre, which sounds a lot like sukha. And sukha has this kind of sweetness to it. It's like a very sweet state of mind. It is also one of the jhanic factors, one of the strong factors of concentration. When the Buddha um, put his teachings together, he talked a lot about suffering in the end of suffering. But you know, this could whole all be expressed in a little different way. In California, for instance, you know, talking a lot about suffering doesn't go down so well. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, the response, California, suffering, suffering, dude, I'm out of here. I'm going to go surf today. So 
in California, rather than talking about you know the first noble truth being the truth of suffering, I think if the Buddha were alive today, he might say something like, well, the first noble truth is there are many opportunities for growth in life. <laughs> so, something like that. And the third noble truth, you know, a Californian would never describe as the end of suffering. They describe as the development of happiness. So this is actually not, not too bad. When suffering goes away, obviously what's in its place is happiness. And you may have tuned into the fact that the Dalai Lama's most popular book so far, I think, was called The Art of Happiness. It was on the bestseller list in the Bay Area for over a year. If it had been titled The End of Suffering, (laughs) I don't think it would have gotten there. So happiness really is the outgrowth of the path. It's intended to be the outgrowth of the path. And in this way of looking, it's a deeper kind of flowering than the gladness, the kind of momentary gladness that arises with conditions of nature or inner discovery. It's considered to be more stable. And so maybe a more accurate term for it is contentment. And it has also qualities of acceptance and peace. There's a real settledness in this kind of happiness because it's joy that's been intensified to rapture but then mellowed out through tranquility. So it's a fuller, uh, a fuller kind of, of blooming. And we could say that the uh, momentary arisings of joy depend on some condition to be triggered But happiness doesn't. This kind of happiness doesn't depend on external conditions. It becomes a more stable quality of heart and mind. But it's still impermanent. It's not not completely stable, but it's a little more stable. I think part of the happiness is the quality of, of coming home. That feeling of arriving in the present moment, feeling integrated, feeling balanced, and really being fully present, being able to have our whole heart and mind in touch with the present moment. And I often feel if I could just always live with that attitude of fullness of heart and mind, anything could happen and life would be okay. I could meet anything in life from that kind of place. And it reminds me a little bit of um, this poem from Rumi. When Rumi says you in a poem, he usually means uh, the divine, whatever form that means to you. But in this, I think of that basic sanity as another way that this you could be understood, this basic centeredness and wholeheartedness. So this is Rumi. Come to the orchard in spring. There is light and wine and sweethearts in the pomegranate flowers. If you do not come... These do not matter. If you do come, these do not matter. So we find ourselves back with ourselves, really connected with ourselves in a deep way through this kind of stability. And I think it's one of the most satisfying aspects of uh, Dharma practice. Sometimes I think we misunderstand happiness and we think that in order to be happy, we have to make it permanent. But happiness can't be secured into the future. If we think about just finding happiness in this one moment, that's really all we can do, and that's a lot easier. It becomes much more accessible 
we think about it as a momentary arising. And we say in uh, Dharma language, take care of this moment and you take care of all time. Now what's interesting is that the practice doesn't stop here. Even though we've arrived at this quality of happiness in the unfolding, there's still more. Many, many times in my practice I would have been quite happy to roll up the mat at this point. But there's more. And that's one of the things the Buddha said. He said, two things I never lost track of in my practice. One was not to be lazy in my effort. The second was not to settle merely for wholesome states of mind. Not to settle just for wholesome states of mind, but to remember that what we're really walking the path for is an unconditional freedom. So happiness continues the deepening process. And the next step in the link is concentration, or samadhi. We usually believe, I think, that concentration is the result of a lot of effort. have to work really, really hard to bring the concentration about. But what this teaching shows, and it's stated explicitly in a number of places, is that the proximate cause of concentration is happiness. I find that really interesting to reflect on. The immediate cause of concentration is happiness. And you can get a sense of that, that when there's happiness, the mind is quite content to settle into the present moment, really settle fully into the present moment. And it doesn't need to go looking outside itself through the movements of desire or aversion. And it's really that external searching that creates the distraction, that take us away from this basic wholeheartedness. So as we settle more and more with happiness, the mind just collects, becomes unified. And as it becomes unified, it gets that strength back. We've given away that strength through a lot of distracted thinking. And as it comes back together, the strength returns to us. And that's where you have the feeling of stability, of steadiness, of stillness in your sitting. Concentration also is not an end goal, although it's very pleasant, but it's considered the base for insight. So the next step in the chain is knowing and seeing things as they are. When the mind is still, we can see reality the way it is. When the mind is spinning, we really can't. We can't see reality that way. It's kind of like we're on a merry-go-round. We've hopped on one of the horses, the merry-go-round's gotten cranked up, And it's just going round and round and round. This is the mind before this week, right? Um, And one of our friends walks up to the edge of the merry-go-round and is holding today's newspaper. And they hold it up in front of us as we go round and round and round. But we can't read the headlines because we're going too fast. Every time we go by, it's just a blur. And then the merry-go-round slows down. And we come to rest in front of our friend, and then we can read the headlines. Everything's changing. Hold on and you'll suffer. Freedom is found through letting go. Ah, I get it. So concentration or stillness of mind is the foundation for insight. So the seeing things as they are really refers to the seeing of the impermanent nature of everything, of how everything that we can contact through our senses is just arising and passing. And if we try to hold on to it, will suffer. 
it won't bring a lasting happiness. As that seeing deepens, it leads to the next link, which is disenchantment. Christina mentioned this in her talk last night, this factor of mind. Disenchantment is really a recognition that none of the phenomena of the sensory world are going to do it for us. Our quest for security, for freedom, for a lasting peace aren't going to be found by holding on to anything that comes out of the senses because every one of those is subject to passing. As that sinks in more and more, it cuts down our tendency to grasp and to look for happiness outside of ourselves or through special states inside of ourselves. Disenchantment doesn't mean that the world all of a sudden looks ugly or that we think it's dreadful that we're here. I don't think it's that way at all. Somebody asked one of my teachers, a Tibetan teacher on a retreat, all this talk about suffering, doesn't it keep you from enjoying the beauty of the world? And the teacher replied, it's only the yogins and yoginis who are free from attachment who are truly able to appreciate the beauty of this world. I think this is really true, and I think you can see it yourself in your experience in meditation. At times when you feel really present and clear and free, that's when the world really lights up. That's when you see the beauty of other people, of nature, of all these appearances. And the Buddha said something similar. He said, the beauty of this world remains the same, but the wise do not cling to it. Wise do not cling to it. As this disenchantment develops, it really kind of affects a fundamental shift in our relationship to the world. We really lose the motivation to be in the world for all the great things we can get out of it. As that tendency to grasp goes away, we start to be in the world more and more out of a sense of what can I offer back to it. You could say it's kind of the awakening of a bodhisattva spirit, of a spirit of really wanting to be in the world to be of benefit to others, to be of service to others. As this disenchantment deepens, it opens to the next link in the chain, which is called dispassion. The Pali term is viraga, and the literal meaning is without lust. This is the state where the heart has really moved away from craving and aversion so strongly and abides in a place of deep peace. And in actual fact, this term viraga or dispassion is a synonym in the text for nibbana, which the Buddha described in this way, insofar as the practitioner has abandoned greed, aversion, and confusion, insofar is nibbana realizable immediate, inviting, and attractive. This direct realization of nibbana, the state of unconditioned peace and freedom, then is the precursor to the next link, which is liberation. The Pali term is vimuti. And at this stage, the liberation that's talked about is um, irreversible. And it's sometimes called in the suttas the unshakable deliverance of mind. And after someone has come to this level of realization, 
there's a standard phrase that's used to describe their situation. They often say, done is what had to be done. Lived is the holy life. There is no more coming to any renewed state of being. The journey has been accomplished. The path has been walked to its completion. And then there's one extra step in the chain after that, which is called knowing the destruction of the taints. And it's after liberation, it's said that the uh, awakened one realizes that all the impurities, the deepest impurities of ignorance and sense desire and desire for becoming have all been lifted or removed from their hearts. So this is the state of the journey, the description of the journey. Founded, beginning on suffering, moving through faith and the opening to joy and happiness, and then that deepening sense of being that with insight sees things the way they are. It's presented as a linear chain, but in actual fact, I think we go through most of these steps over and over and over and over. So I suspect that in the week that you've been here, you've been through most of the early steps along the way of this. You've been through moments of suffering and moments of faith, moments of joy and moments of tranquility, moments of happiness and moments of insight that lead to letting go, that lead to disenchantment. So I think we circle through these stages many, many, many times on the path at deeper and deeper levels until hopefully the liberation uh, accompanies them. I remember when I was on an early retreat here at IMS and I heard a talk that talked about the positive unfolding of the path and I got very desirous. I got very impatient of reaching the end and I think that's one of the risks of lending an ear to this kind of talk. Um, and I went to the teacher the very next day for an interview. The teacher had given the talk and I walked in and I really wanted to shake him by the shoulders and say, Richard, when's it going to happen for me? That was really what I wanted to know. When is, when is this going to happen for me? This is really what, what I want. How long is it going to take? And um, he said, of course, being an honest guy, he said, I don't know. You know like, who does know? But uh, the beauty of this kind of description is that happiness is not only possible as we continue the journey, it's really inevitable. It's such an intrinsic part of the whole journey that it does have to come in time. We just don't know when. We don't know the pace. We can't set the pace of our own unfolding. The Buddha said something like this. He said, a practitioner doesn't know how much of the fetters are wearing away every day, but he does know they wear away. And then he went on to say that the fetters of the mind, the things that hold us in bondage, rot away in meditation the way that the uh, sails of an ocean-going ship will rot away when the ship is beached and left to the elements of the wind and the salt air and the sun and the rain. The fetters of the mind rot away in meditation like the sails of an ocean-going ship rot in the elements. So we know that this path is a path of purification. What we don't know is the rate that it's going to unfold at for any of us. We can't control it. We can't force it. 
even if we devote all of our time to formal mindfulness practice, there's a certain point beyond which we can't accelerate the process. It's really out of our control. It rests on our past karma and on our current effort. So the best thing is just to relax with that faith and trust that the Dharma will carry you there. That you can relax into the stream of Dharma practice as you make your effort. And know it only leads in one direction. It leads in this direction of freedom. This is from Ajahn Chah. As a result of his experience, the Buddha taught that the practice has to develop naturally, according to conditions. You allow things to develop according to your accumulated wholesome karma and paramis, that means your virtues. This doesn't mean you stop putting effort into the practice, but you continue with the understanding that whether you progress swiftly or slowly, it's not something you can force. It's like planting a tree. It knows by itself the appropriate pace to grow at. If you crave to get quick results, see that as delusion. Even if you want it to grow slowly, see that as delusion. So we really do just surrender into the stream of the Dharma. We trust and we let it carry us. And I'll just close with one uh, other quotation from the Buddha. And somebody came and asked him, how did you cross the flood? And what this means in Dharma language is, how did you cross the flood of existence, of becoming, of samsara. And that basically says, how did you become liberated? And this was the Buddha's reply. I crossed the flood by not tarrying and not hurrying. When I tarried, I sank. And when I hurried, I was swept away. So let's just sit for a minute together, please. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 20, 2002. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.